There are three things you don't talk about in polite company, religion, money, and politics. So in the name of Jesus, we just took an offering, and now we're going to talk about government. We must not be very polite people. Some of you are nervous, and you've already expressed your nervous saucity. I just made up that word. Your nervousness this week. I'm not nervous. I don't have any left. I've been nervous all week long as I've been reading and pounding through saying, Lord, I want to represent you well, not a political party. I want to represent you. And I don't think you need to be nervous for this is really not Washington's view of government that I'm getting ready to present. It's not the Republicans versus the Democrats. It's not even the capitalists versus the socialists. I want to present to you today Jesus' view of government from his scriptures. And therefore, if you're a friend of Jesus and you like what the scriptures have to say, you shouldn't be nervous. And I'm going to be very careful about going beyond what the scriptures say and leave some room for your interpretation in your life. But I'm going to be humbly bold and lay out what I've learned this week, what I think the Father would have us know. So let's go together in prayer before we jump in the Word of God. Father in heaven, we know that you are indescribable. And we want to become your maturing sons and daughters, and we want to learn to boast in nothing but Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Help us to boast most in that as we put on our bumper stickers and wear our pens. May people know that we boast most in Jesus Christ. Son, we would like to acknowledge your sovereignty, that you are King of kings, Lord of lords. And we long to see your face. We long to see more of your kingdom come on earth as it is already being done in heaven. And we want to be faithful missionaries for you on this planet. In spirit, we ask that you would instruct our heads Yes, we would be brighter than we are. We pray that you would compel our hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take this rock that we are and chisel away all that is not Jesus Christ so that people may see Christ more clearly when they watch us and hear us talk. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. An introductory passage that I might read with you is 1 Samuel chapter 12. Just three verses, 13 through 15. And now, behold, the king you have chosen, the king for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. In this simple text, we see that not much has changed. There are people who choose their king. There's a political process of some sort here 
where they chose the king they wanted, the one that stood head and shoulders above all others. They wanted him. They asked for him. They chose him. But we see that the king behind the king, the Lord behind the king, reigns supreme. Ultimately, we see he's the king of kings who sets Saul over Israel at this point. And he has his will. He has his commands. He has his rules, his legislation. He has his wisdom that even if you were an unbeliever, but you were to do government in accordance with this, it would go better with you just because our God's that wise. But if you would stiffen your backs, you, and disobey the Lord, or the king, and disobey the Lord, he's telling Israel, it won't go well with you. And I think this is what we have seen, not only in the theocratic nation of Israel, of the Old Testament, but in societies around the globe, that when they order themselves according to virtue, according to wisdom, according to truth, according to that which is found in God's word, whether they are worshipers of God or not, how blessed are the people who follow after the counsel of the Lord. That's kind of where we're going, but I want to back away now and give you a systematic overview of what Jesus, his people, and government, how they're supposed to coexist. Ten points. They pretty closely follow what you have in your bulletin. I don't think I've made many changes since I turned that in earlier this week, but let's go at it. Number one, we need to know Jesus is king. Now, there's going to be a Baptist moment in a second. Maybe I'll touch my nose. And at that point, you can go, amen. I don't want to ruin it this time. Let's practice. You ready? Amen. Now, it's got to kind of be a guttural thing. One more time. Amen. We can smile a little bit. I know we're talking politics. I know you're nervous. So when I touch my nose, let's give it a good one. You'll kind of know where it's going. Maybe I'll even pick it up a bit. But Jesus endured first a stage of humiliation. He has Shekinah glory. He has all the benefits of being God, but he lays them aside. He takes on human flesh, and he comes to the earth. When he comes to the earth, he takes on human body, adds to himself a human soul, and he's not a Roman citizen. He's a conquered people group. He's a Jew who's subservient, who's poor. I think it was quite often for a Roman dignitary to walk by and say, what you doing, boy? Speaking to the king of kings. Other people called him bastard. He became known as demon-possessed, a crazy man, a traitor, a criminal. He was arrested, mocked, beaten, tortured on a cross, and he died. But that's not the end of his story. That's the end of the beginning of his story, as one song says. And so now we have Jesus' exaltation. What did he do when he died? He had a, an appointment. He took the thief on the cross with him to paradise. He escorted him there. What an escort that must have been. Father, this is the one for whom I died. Then, on the first day of the week, he came back to the earth with his soul. He joined the body. He resurrected the body. He made his bed. He folded the bedclothes. He removed the stone. He said, boo, to the guards. Sent them scurrying away. 
He said, hello, ladies, to some visiting women who were coming to the garden. He met with his disciples. He encouraged them. He built their faith. He fed them. He sent them out on his mission to go into all the world. Then he ascended into heaven, where what? He sits on the right hand of God Almighty on his regal throne. His knowledge is unfathomable. His power is unequal. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the czar of czars, and the president of presidents. His foes have no future. His term has no limits. His kingdom is forever and ever. Amen. You didn't miss it. That's our king. That's Jesus Christ. So live like you believe it. Get your head up. Quit walking around like this is the devil's world. This is our father's world. That's an extra one. <laughs> Number two, Jesus has a political party. He has a neighborhood party, a group. He calls them my people. It's the church. Now, does Jesus have nations? Sure. Does he like some better than others? Maybe. Has he had a preferred one in the past? Yes. Is that his preferred nation now? We'll let you debate that later. That's not the point of this sermon. But he does have nations. It's his intention that people would spread across the globe. He separated them into different languages. Jesus is Lord of the nations. He lets them grow when he wants to grow. When, the, when he wants them to grow, he floods them when he wants to flood them. When he wants to, he dominates Egypt. He dominates the kingdoms in Canaan land. And when he's done with Israel, he terminates it and sends them into exile in Babylon. When he wants to bring them back, he reestablishes them just like he said he would do. He is the God of Babylon, of Persia, of Assyria, of Greece. He allowed Rome to dominate. He took her down when he was done with her. Throughout history, we've seen Middle Eastern nations rise, and we had the rise of the Muslim states. We had those days when it was England and France and Spain that were sailing across the big blue seas, planting their flags here and there, expanding their empires. Later, it was Germany and Italy and Japan who said, we want some of that action. God lets nations grow when he wants them to grow. He kills them when he wants to kill them. Right now, superpowers are the United States, Russia, and China. And there is absolutely no reason for you to think that any of those nations are his favorite nations or that any of those will exist forever. He uses nations. He has his people in all the nations. They serve his purposes, but those nations are not his political party. So you may be patriotic, and you're allowed to be, but let's never confuse a nation with the church, because Jesus thinks his church is special. In the Bible, it's his church for whom he came and died. It's his church that is his covenant community. It's his church that is his royal priesthood. Yes, his church is his holy nation. It is his church that is supposed to take over the planet and will go from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the world. His church is his beloved. His church is his bride. When he talks to Saul on the road to Tarsus and says, why are you persecuting me? He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about his church. That's with whom he identifies most. Yes, there are Gentiles in his church. There are Jews in his church. But he's only got one chosen people. 
It's the spiritual seed of Abraham. That church is destined to grow like a mustard seed. The church is destined to destroy the gates of hell. The church is destined to stand to the end. It will never perish. Our king, he has many nations. Our king has one church. And he prefers church over nation. He prefers church over patriotism. He definitely prefers church over partisanship. The question is not, are you allied to a party or are you allied to a nation? The ultimate question is, are you allied to the king of kings? That's the big deal. Jesus' party is his church. Number three, every party has a platform. Something which they say, if you're with us, this is what we stand for. So one political party in the United States has a platform for a smaller government, capitalism over climate change, heightened police presence and rule of law, sanctity of life, closed borders, the priority of families to make their own decisions, and American independence. That's one political party, and in contrast to that is another. This would not be the time for an amen. We don't want to talk about parties right now. So have a little control. Another political party believes in larger government, climate change over capitalism, less police presence, the right for a mother to choose to kill her baby, open borders, a priority of educators over parents, and American interdependence. All right, so they have their platforms, but what I'm trying to point out is Jesus has his platform. So now I'm taking those two parties and putting them over here, and you may have one or the other that you prefer, or maybe an intermingling of both. Maybe you're, That's okay. These parties are over here. But really what matters is what says the king of kings over here? And anything over there that is not here is wrong. And anything over there that is here is borrowed capital. That's good news if some of that measures up here. And it's really good news if most of that measures up what's here. But what we care about is here. And where would you go to find his party platform? He has his own constitution, his own bill of rights, his own declaration. It's called the word of God. It's written it's printed, it's fixed, and it's time-tested. It doesn't change. Number four, Jesus, when you look at his party platform, has both heavenly and spiritual interests in mind. Yes, it's true that over here in Jesus' platform, he's going to tell the church, I want you to focus on theology. I want you to know who God is and his attributes, and I want you to understand faith and repentance, peace, contentment. He's over here. He said, I want you to know how to worship. I want you to know how to pray. All that is in his platform. I want to talk about spiritual gifts, the afterlife. All of that's over there. But over there, in Jesus' platform, is more than just spiritual stuff. Over there, you'll find that Jesus has earthly interests. If you read his word, his platform material, you'll find that he cares about the environment, animals, people made in his image, 
the undereducated or uneducated, the sick, the hungry, the homeless, the alien, the abused. He also cares about the liar, the swindler, the thief, and the murderer. He urges you to pray and pursue the peace and prosperity of the city. So it's Gnosticism. Remember when our study of 1 John, that says only the spiritual matters. Anything that's physical is, is ungodly and carnal. And so all we care about is spiritual. It's the pietist who says, I want to move to a commune. I want to isolate and just pray every day because I don't have much energy to focus on this world. That's not the Christian. The Christian has the view that Abraham Kuyper says, where God says there's not one stray molecule, not one area of all of creation where God says, that's not mine. He cares about spiritual and physical. He cares about what happens in this building and what happens when we leave this building. And the God who cares about both the heavenly and the earthly has divided everything up in three spheres. He says, first of all, there's the family. And I have thoughts for the family, he says over here. So once again, their platform, God's platform. We have his earthly platform and his spiritual platform. And in his earthly platform, he has that divided up into three spheres. There's the family with the servant leader of the patriarch and the matriarch, the father and the mother, who are supposed to die for their children. They have ultimate responsibility for their children to serve. Over here, we also have the elders, who are the servants in that second sphere, the church. And the church does things that the family doesn't. So you don't get to say, I'm going to do family, but not church. No, we do family, but we also do church, and parents are over the family, elders serve and die for the church, and then the God who knows what is best ordained, thirdly, government. And over that is governors of different names and varieties. And God cares about this. He hates wicked governors. Just like God hates it when fathers abuse their children or elders abuse those under their care, he hates Pharaoh. He hates the leaders of Sodom. He hates it when he sees Xerxes go and rip people away from their families to go into his harem. He hates this when Pharisees go and grab some lady caught in the act of adultery, probably set up, and throw her down ruthlessly before the crowd. He hates this. He has rules. He encourages worshipers to take public office, to pray for those in public office, to submit to those in public office, and sometimes to take out those in public office. I'm not going to go there much today, but we'll keep going. But because Jesus is king, because he has his church and instructs his church and instructs his church regarding things spiritual and temporal, and because he cares about the family, the church, and the government, Therefore, we have to care. And the first way we care is to love our families. Let's start there with that sphere. As a Jesus-following parent, I have to be active in politics. I'm not even talking about my role as a pastor yet. As a Jesus-following parent, you have to be active in politics. Why would I say that? Let's see if I can win the day here. 
You know, God gave me two parents who loved me. From before I remember them, they loved me. I started off in their care, and now as we get older, they have to obey me. Right, Mom? <laughs> now, I still have a duty to honor, respect, and I do take over some of the caring aspects in ways that I can assist them in that way. Man, I have a wife that I don't deserve. Three children that are better than I deserve. I have a great daughter-in-law named Skylar that I'm learning to love like a daughter. And someday, I'm going to be like Tim Williams, just the proud grandpa who can't get enough of those grandchildren. Don't have that privilege yet, but those days are coming. They're my responsibility. As a matter of fact, it's my priority. It hasn't always been this way, but my bride knows that if I need to say farewell to being pastor at Horizon Church to better love my family, that that's what I will do. Because God tells me to have my family in order before I'm an elder. And so my job is to train my family, to teach them the things of God. My job is to pursue my family when they run off from Christ, to provide for my family, to promote their future, to promote their well-being, hopefully even to leave them an inheritance is what a godly man does in Proverbs, it says. My duty is to die, and if my duty is to die, my duty is to protect. From whom? Those who want to harm them now and those who dream about harming them in the future. So I start asking myself today, who is harming my family now? Who is telling them, follow our lead, forget God? Who wants to harm them the most in the future? Where's the greatest danger that can be found? And I'm telling you, the greatest danger to the Franks family is not North Korea. There's danger lurking everywhere. So I start asking myself the question, because I love my king, because I worship my king, because I love his truth and his platform, because I love my nearest of neighbors, which happen to be the Franks family. Therefore, I cannot be passive and contribute to the success of fools or enemies who want to do them wrong. I cannot be passive and contribute to the demise of those that I say I love most. I can't do it. So it's a matter of worship. I love my God. It's a matter of love. I love my family. And it's a matter of stewardship. I have some ability to act in such a manner as to protect and profit my family. I've got to do that or else I'm saying I love, but it's such a shallow affection that I have. I absolutely must engage myself in the protection and promotion of my family, whom Christ has placed under my authority. This has nothing to do with patriotism. It also has nothing to do with materialism or hedonism or, or, or selfish interests. I'm not saying I'm going to now vote because it's what I want most, it's what I prefer most. No, I have other people 
in mind, people that the God of the heavens has placed under my authority, and so I must serve them to the best of my ability. So regardless of what I want or what profits me, I absolutely must pursue their best interest because I love them. As a Jesus-following parent, I must love my family. Next, as a Jesus-loving pastor, I must love my church family. When I came here four and a half years ago, I was so excited to come back from Greenville. I'm back to Greenville from Birmingham. I was so excited to be in a modern church where we could do things a little bit more relaxed and in a different manner. I so wanted to grab the next gen. I mean, younger parents and just really pour into them some of that stuff that had been poured into me. And I know it's a fool's errand, but I wanted to be winsome, hospitable, attractional, non-offensive, and hip. As I wear my wool pants and sport coat today. I wanted to focus on the gospel, and only the gospel. I wanted to be a church where all the Republicans and Democrats and independents and people from every walk of life in upstate would come in and hear about Jesus and fall in love with him. I wanted to preach on doctrinal essentials and not secondary things. I wanted to focus on spiritual things, matters of the head, heart, and of heaven. Do I want any of that less? None of it less. But my posture's changed. Why? saw my own kids grow up. I see there are high schoolers here that we will only have for one or two more years to sculpt until they go off as young adults in the college world. And I know that there are college professors licking their lips, salivating to present their contrary truth to our young men and women. I see media sources all around sculpting our minds, and someone in politics has a theology and a morality that is winning the day. I've seen poor Christian leaders with, with wrong theology and with wrong methodology. And I know God has given us His book of wisdom, and I know that we exist for far more than what Eric McTaxis would call the idol of evangelism. We evangelize. We're serious about evangelism. We want to be hospitable with open arms telling people about Jesus Christ. But that's not all that we exist for according to what? The party platform of Jesus Christ who said, I want you to teach all things that I have commanded you. I want you to teach the whole counsel of God's word. And so we exist to teach God's law to teach his thoughts about neighborhood rule, to protect, to call out, to admonish and discipline. And yes, while I hope to be as unoffensive as possible, as I mentioned last week, what do we now know? It's a fool's errand. You're just going to be intolerable to someone. So we're not going to try to be abrasive, but we just are going to be abrasive, even if we have the love of Christ. Someone is going to teach Christ's little ones. And someone is going to cause some of Christ's little ones to stumble. 
So what now do I do as a godly parent or what do I do as a godly elder or pastor? Who better to teach God's word and God's thoughts on family, on church, and on politics? Who better than a man of God who's been trained and who's studied all week long and has been called by the Holy Spirit and a church to teach us the ways of God? And yet all of government and all of culture says everyone can speak on this except the pastor. I'm sitting here going as a Jesus-following pastor who loves his church. I need to ask those same questions. Who's harming you today? Who wants to harm you in the future? And therefore, my job is not to side over here. My job is to stand as courageously and boldly and clearly as I can over here, which allows you to assess that. But this is my job because my family needs it desperately. And I'm a guy focused on worship. I love my God and want his ways. I love his people. Love, I love his people. I love you. Stewardship. He's given me this voice, whatever intellect I do have or books that I have, he's given them to me. He's given me money that you give to me to study and present. I have his word. I have maybe spiritual gifts, I hope. It's my job not to be passive but to be active in protecting you, growing you. I've got to if I'm a man of love. Finally, I have to love my neighbors, and you do too. As a Jesus-following missionary, I must love those in the upstate. They are going to hell, so that I will tell them about Jesus. But they're living like hell, so I will tell them the wisdom of Jesus. Our neighborhood is growing in lunacy and injustice. It's God who loves them. It's God who gives them common grace. It's God who calls me to keep the first four of the Ten Commandments, which focus on Him. But it's God who also calls me to keep the next six, which is my relationship to them. So I am supposed to spend myself like the Good Samaritan for my neighbors. And if I have this truth that will guide them in the right way and help encourage their prosperity and peace, what should I do? I should be the most loving neighbor that I can. I should want to make their living situation better, promote what our Lord deems best. Because I love them, I do what a parent does for his younger children. When a parent knows it's not good for Johnny to play in the street, even though Johnny wants to play in the street, the parent says, I'm going to use all of my privilege and power to do what? Help keep Johnny from the street because I want to impose upon him that which is my religious view? No, because I love Johnny. And that's what we're supposed to do to the people walking around in darkness. We who have the light need to love them more by encouraging that legislation and that way of freedom that is best for them, whether they want it or not, not because we want it, but because it's best for them. It's a matter of worship, stewardship, love, and it cannot be passive. And I might as well go to my neighbors, not only near in the upstate, but afar. By protecting the United States of America and our freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of commerce, I am further blessing the nations because the United States has made a bunch of money. 
and has given a bunch of money away to missions organizations. And we have been able to really prosper as we send our missionaries and our money other places by us promoting liberty and truth and virtue and morality here. We bless the nations. We love the nations. And so now we've seen that as a parent, as an elder, and as a citizen, I don't get to say I worship my God and I don't get to say I love my neighbors unless I'm involved in making their lives better and protecting them from harm, which means I got to get involved in the political process that either can help or harm or further the cause of Christ. I don't know how I can be a worshiper or a good neighbor without being a good steward. I'm also to love my governors. I'm commanded to pray for them, respect them, and obey them. But it's always been a Reformed tradition that I'm called to preach to them. That's how I get involved most in the political process. I get involved most by being a Dr. Martin Luther King, by being a D. James Kennedy, by being a John the Baptist who looks at Herod and says, what you're doing is not right. The power of the church is the word of God. And so therefore, as a pastor, I'm once again not preaching this party or this party. I'm preaching this party, but I need to do so in a way that honors the king. That's my role as a citizen in the United States of America, to pray, respect, obey, and preach, because it's a matter of worship, love, and stewardship. So therefore, we get to our final point, how to steward rightly and differently. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, I'm not going to read it to you now, there's the master who gives some of his money to A, some of his money to B, some of his money to C, and A and B, they're not filled with fear. They trust the heart of the master. They know it's his stuff. They know it was given to him to invest. And so they go at it and they hear words of commendation. Well done. And they are blessed and so is their family as they take that which was entrusted to them and they steward it well. They were the active ones. But then we had the fearful passive, number C letter C, who lived in fear and took that which was invested in him by the master and hid it in the ground and said, I'm not investing this. I'm not touching this. He was the one who was condemned. He was displeasing because he didn't take a chance and risk it. He lived in fear and it hurt he and his family. Well, this is the question that's before me, I think. Am I going to be passive or active? Am I going to retreat or risk? Am I going to be silent or am I going to speak? Am I going to be isolated? Or am I going to inspire change? So I have to ask myself, what does worship look like in the political process? And I need to worship my God. I need to ask, what does love look like? What does stewardship look like? It's when I take my privilege that I have, and I have lots of privilege. We've talked about this before. I got white privilege, I got American privilege, I got upper middle class privilege, I got education privilege, I got United States of America privilege, I got male privilege, I got uh, South Carolina upstate privilege, I got horizon privilege, I got a bunch of friends that people don't all have. 
I got PCA privilege. Man, there's just a bunch of blessings that have come my way that I'm not going to pout or pretend that I don't have. I'm not going to boast in them. I'm just going to give glory to Jesus Christ and say, Father, thank you for the privilege. And I got possessions. I have money. Some saved. I got power. I have a voice. Influence. A steward requires me to use my privilege, my power, my possessions for my Christ and for those created in his image. So now I ask myself, what would sinful passivity look like? What would sinful laziness look like? What would sinful defeatism look like if I really believed all was lost? What would sinful fear look like? What would sinful self-worship look like when I vote that which is harmful for my neighbor but best for me? What would sinful tolerance look like when I wink at sin? Or what would sinful isolation look like if I jumped in my monastery and only spoke words of truth here? In the book, I've already mentioned Eric McTaxis, A Letter to the American Church. He writes of ministers in the 1930s in Germany who were aware of evil. And they were opposed to evil. But they were naive in that they didn't recognize the trajectory of evil and how bad it could get. Finally, one day they did wake up and they did speak out, but it was too late for they had given up too much ground. There was no going back. They had played it safe far too long. They had not paid the price. They were silent in the face of evil. And ultimately, by their silence, they contributed to the cause of evil. There's really not this middle ground which I used to believe in, like I'll just sit on the fence. There is the forces, there are the forces of evil that are heading in a direction, and you are either fighting them or not fighting them. And if you're not fighting them, you're contributing to their success. Let me read this quote. It's up there. If you do not speak, you are not being neutral, but are contributing to the success of the thing you refuse to name and condemn. Bonhoeffer was the exception. He loved the gospel. He loved spiritual things, but he loved his neighbors he recognized Jesus was not always quiet and peaceable. He preached the word. And he felt led in a time of war to follow up his words with actions. Today, there are striking parallels to the German church of the 1930s. I'm not going to go into it. I'm not going to whine and complain or point that out. You know where things are tough. What are we to do? Active stewardship but we do it differently than the world. There are sins of omission where we engage in, where we do not engage in politics as we should. But there are sins of commission when we engage in politics as we should not. So, for example, let's just go ahead and end on a note that just makes half of you really unhappy. Take the list go Brandon stickers off your car. We all know that that comes from an expletive towards the one king 
that our Lord has established over the United States for now. And we can hate everything that goes on with the former president or with this president, but there should be a demeanor of respectability as we fight against evil. Call it out, but just call it out different than your pagan neighbors. Let's not worship men as if we're looking for our next Messiah to come and save the United States. We do it differently than others. We're not going to worship our country. We're not going to worship a party. And we're not going to be engaged in lying, slander, misrepresentation, stealing, or dishonor. And one other thing, if we're going to do politics and steward it really well and be active, we have to allow Christian liberty in this church. Because we cannot destroy the harmony of brothers and sisters over secondary issues. So you fight for them with all your might. You write your letters, you send your emails, you pass along your videos. You, you, you choose which marches you want to go and your t-shirts that you want to wear. But just know, in this church, there's going to be division in thought. People are allowed to go to the Lord and with the Holy Spirit in view, think and pray and come to a conclusion that you may not completely understand, but you sit there going, all right, what am I going to do now? I'll tell you what you're going to do now. Remember, these are not Jesus' parties. This is His party. And so therefore, we guard the unity and the harmony of people led by Christ, led by His Spirit, led by His words that come to different conclusions. And when we think they're wrong, we have loving conversations and we listen well and we go deeper and we throw out facts. But we're just not going to divide this like they divide over there. For that comes and goes. This is forever. And so I want to say, as we get engaged in politics, because I think we must. We do it seriously. But we do it differently than the world. Because we're His people. We're His party. In Proverbs 27, 10 through 12, I end with this. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So what are you going to do? Well, let's get busy. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. And if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay men according to his work? We're supposed to be active in loving our neighbors. God is saying to us, I have entrusted to you freedom. I have entrusted to you wealth. I have entrusted to you my children, my church, my bride, my disciples. You have my thoughts, my word. God is saying to me, and I think He's saying to you, will you trust me with your reputation? Will you trust me with your soul winning or evangelism? Will you trust me with your growth, your finances, your freedom, or your future? I think Christ is saying to us, worship me well. Love your neighbors well. Steward the opportunity you have in the United States of America to choose your officials. Get engaged in the process as a matter of worship, love, and stewardship.